Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. How are you? Good to see you. So uh, either uh, the sermon was really long, and you have that to look forward to, our traffic was really bad, and it was hard getting over. <laughs> Eric said he has a guess. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the pandemic to be over. Yeah. And I've been analyzing that and what that looks like in the life of the church, and I have come to a conclusion. I will know the pandemic is officially over when there are donuts. That's... Because we're funny about donuts. Like, we don't really go buy donuts because that would be indulgent. I mean, I just don't feel good about myself when I pull into the donut shop. I just, I just question my, my self-discipline. But when the church buys them, that's okay. It's almost like God has given us approval to eat donuts. And I would never eat a whole donut. That's, that's just gluttony. But you cut them in half, I'll have four or five halves. Because <laughs> I need one of each. So you'll know it's officially over when we're all outside eating donuts again. And, and when you stop and you think about the kingdom of God and the reality of what we've been through, and even your own psyche, your own mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, and the health of the life of the church as we gather in a unique way. More folks of us joining online than ever, you know, around the world in history of the church. And aren't we thankful that that's an option and a choice? And Amen. We've had partnerships in ministry over the years. We believe in those partnerships. Right now we have a 10-year partnership going on in Eswatini. You kind of know that. We're in about year six or seven, depending on how you count the pandemic. Before that, we had a 10-year partnership in Bolivia, and, and we got into that because some folks here knew some folks that knew some folks, and there were some career missionaries somehow networked in with us, and so we just said, you know, let's adopt Bolivia and we'll go, and so we did. And we were a part of a, a, a transition that was happening, and that transition was they'd been building these little mission churches. And, and then they decided that little mission churches didn't hold enough people to be viable. They needed way more people to pay the bills, and so they decided to build some bigger churches. So we were a part of uh, visiting a tiny village outside of the city of Cochabamba called Cleza. And, and we, we were a part of the very first team that went in to build three buildings, a sanctuary that would seat about 12 to 1,500 people, uh, two four-story auxiliary buildings that were dormitories, a house for the pastor, uh, that would serve as a district center and a campground adjacent to a public park, a big soccer field. And we got to be, our team was the first team. We, 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 I wasn't there on that trip. I was having a child at the time, but dug the foundations. I mean, dug the ditches for the foundation of those three buildings, our team. And then had the privilege five years later to be the last team on that project. We were putting the doors and windows 
into that sanctuary facility at the same time that we were pouring concrete on the third and fourth stories of the auxiliary building. So if you ever want to go on a mission trip, this is not the one you want to go on. <laughs> Where you're pouring concrete and you're taking concrete up ladders on buckets and you're bending rebar and you're building forms, this is not the project you want to be on unless you just are a sadist. And so knowing that we were up against a really heavy workload, Larry Webb, who was a missionary, decided that we needed some auxiliary projects during our mission trip. So on the first morning, Monday morning, we flew in on Saturday, we had church on Sunday. On Monday morning, 4 a.m., he said, you guys, we're going to go up to the Altiplano, we're going to do a project up there. So you guys, we're going to get on this bus, bus that holds about 36 people. It's built to hold 36 people. There were only 15 in our team. Not everybody went, so there were plenty of room on the bus. We got on the bus. We drove into Cochabamba. By the way, when you charter a bus in Bolivia, there's just information for you. That does not mean that the driver will not stop and pick up other people. <laughs> That's a thing. And so we got into Cochabamba, and we stopped at a little church there, and 20 folks came out and got on the bus with us because we're all going to go up to the Altiplano work all day. We don't know what the Altiplano is. We, we've never, we don't know what that is, which is why we were on the bus in the first place. We stopped at another little church. About 30 more people got on. Did you hear me mention that it holds about 36? So it was about 50 or 60 people on a bus that holds about 36. To say it was claustrophobic is an understatement. It was uncomfortably difficult to move around on the bus. You were packed in there like sardines. And the driver still stopped and welcomed some other folks. We started up the mountainside, up into the Andes Mountains, and we drove and drove and drove about two hours into the drive. The driver pulled over to the stop and said, it's a restroom break. We had left the tree line behind. There was no vegetation. There was no place to go. He simply said, women to the front, men to the back. This is how we do it in Bolivia. Got back on the bus. We went over the pass at 15,000 feet. Now, 15,000 feet. Do you understand 15,000 feet? Do you know what that means? It means at some point you claustrophobically are conscious of the fact that you are not breathing. That you are literally sucking it in. And the bus driver pulled over a little village and he said, you know, here's a gas station. You guys can go in there. And we're like, well, and no, he said, no, there's an acetylene torch in there. Okay. One side of the settling torch is pure oxygen. Just get that torch and take a hit off that torch and get some oxygen in your system. So we were in the garage bay passing around. You got this picture? Becky? Becky McKelvey. Brings a whole new meaning to passing the torch. We dropped down about a thousand feet onto the Altiplano. If you don't know what the Altiplano is, let me tell you. It's the plains of Kansas at 14,000 feet up in the Andes. It is thousands of square miles of the flattest plain you have ever seen up on the top of the Andes Mountains. It's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. And there is zero oxygen. And we're going to do construction projects up there. We were building a retirement home for pastors. I suggested they just shoot them. I mean, I mean, why exile them up into that place? That's, that's just a slow death is what it is. 
and all of this time, hours, six-hour bus ride from Cleza to the Altiplano, Larry Webb is sitting behind me, and he is offloading all the wisdom of his 50 years of ministry and missionary work into my brain. He is talking the whole time. Did I mention we started at 4 a.m.? Now, I don't remember very much of what he said. My oxygen-deprived, claustrophobic brain was struggling. But I do remember him saying this, and it has stuck with me. If you have a vision, nobody cares. Until you make that vision a project and a plan where people can come beside you and help it come true, it doesn't mean anything. I think that's true, don't you? I would guess that this morning, right now in this place, there are folks here, folks online joining us, and in this time of reflection, because this has been that, you've had a sense, you've had a vision. There's something in you that sparked, and you say, you know what, I, you know what we ought to do? Maybe it was just you personally. You know what I ought to do? <laughs> I ought to stop eating donuts and work out more. See, that's a vision. It might come true. You've had a vision for your family, you've had a vision for your own personal life, your own personal journey, but until that vision becomes a project and a plan, it just kind of stays out there in the ether, doesn't it? And that's true in the life of the church. We get visions about what we ought to do and how it ought to work, but until that vision takes on some kind of practice, until it makes that transition from the ether into some practical application, then it doesn't mean very much. And that's what's happening to Nehemiah. That he's had this vision that his heart has been broken by the reality of, uh, of the situation in Jerusalem. But he takes some more steps. He doesn't leave it in that space. He, he moves it forward. And the first thing that I observe about Nehemiah in this moment is his flexibility. It's his willingness to transition. I don't know about you, but I don't transition well. And the older I get, the less well I transition. Here's my attitude. Hey, it took me 61 years to be like this. You guys just need to adjust at this point. Amen? That's a bad attitude. That's a bad attitude. I saw a post the other day uh, from a pastor uh, that I don't really know, but I friended at some point along the way on Facebook, and he, this is what it said. Hey, I'm an older pastor. I just retired. I'm kind of an old traditional guy. I see things the old way. The church I'm attending, they're getting progressive, and I don't really fit in anymore. If you know of a church that's just looking for somebody that's kind of older in their ways and older in their thought processes, I'm your person. Would you give me a reference? And you know what I thought? I thought, why don't you just change and become the person that your church needs? Amen? I mean, why would you say to a bunch of people, I don't fit in here at this church I'm attending. Wouldn't you just stop instead and say, how do I become what this place needs? Because we got to transition. we got to be willing. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He, he was the guy. He lived in luxury. I don't know what influence or power or social skills he must have had, but he rose to the point of being the cupbearer to the king. That means he got along with people. That means the king liked him. That means they hung out, they chatted. I mean, he's got some skills going on. And the vision is to go be a construction manager in some remote place that's been through a devastating war. And what does he do? I'm going to make the transition. I'm going to go from being the cupbearer of the king to being the construction manager. I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to become what it needs. I'm not going to be the guy that sits around. I'm going to be the guy that gets his hands dirty. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get a shovel. I know the difference. And if you and I are going to see the vision 
become a project and a plan, there's some transition is going to need to happen inside of us, some flexibility. Are you flexible? I don't know if you know this, but we don't get to stay the same. I got four kids. My four kids are not the same. They all need me to be flexible. And I would rather be connected to them and flexible than disconnected from them and rigid. And they just happen to be my children. I mean, there's a whole, there's whole classes of people. There's a whole, we call them Gen Xers or Gen Yers or the nuns or whatever we're calling them now. That's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N. That's different. Those are different nuns. We're not throwing shade on the nuns. But we can have flexibility with our own kids sometimes, but not flexibility with other people's kids. Or with these generational movements that we see. But we ought to. This is, this is the church. This is the future. This is who we are. It's not who we might be sometime. These, these kids and the way they see the world and what they know and understand that we don't know and understand is important that we know and understand. Are we flexible like that? And so Nehemiah goes to the king and he's making this vision into a project and a plan. And he says to the king, because the king notices that he's dejected. Obviously, they have enough interpersonal relationship that the king observes that his mood is not good. That says something. <laughs> What's going on, Nehemiah? You seem like you're kind of depressed. Yeah. My homeland's in dis- devastated. I just found out. I just heard this report. Well, what should we do? Well, I think I'll go back. Well, how long would you have to be gone? I want to break in a new cupbearer. Well, it'll be a little while. It'll take some time. Well, what do you think you need? Well, I'm going to need resources. I'm going to need a letter that says, you know, loosen up the, the POs over at the lumber yard. I'm going to need some lumber. I'm going to need some rock. I'm going to need some mortar. And by the way, it's a dangerous trip from here to there. I don't know if you know this, but not everybody likes you. And they won't like me. And they might kill me. And the king says, all right. Here's some letters that'll get you all the resources you need. And here's some letters that anybody bothers you, you just say, hey, you may not like Artaxerxes, but if you don't treat Nehemiah nicely, he'll come and visit you. And you don't want that. And I'll just send some soldiers with you as well. And so they begin to make the trip. They make that transition. And, Jer- and Nehemiah makes his way from uh, the, the citadel at Susa, and he makes his way to the city of Jerusalem. And we pick up the story in chapter 2, uh, verse 11. This is what happens. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there wasn't enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or anybody else about the work that I would be doing. 
And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let's start the rebuilding. And so they began this good work. That'd be a great place to end, wouldn't it? Let's just put a period at that. Let's all celebrate. That's wonderful. But it goes on. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. And they said, what is it that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So just five observations that I have about what Nehemiah did that I think matters, and then I'm going to make that into a few more for the rest of us here in a minute. Nehemiah did an honest assessment with his own eyes. I like this. Nehemiah goes and he shows up, and, and he doesn't form a committee to go look at the work. He gets on a horse by himself, and some other people go with him, but they are nameless, faceless, talkless. They don't speak. There's no words. He just goes and he looks. And he rides around under the cover of darkness because you know, that's better. It's better. In fact, the whole story is just the fact that when you take a bunch of people with you, it complicates the vision becoming practical. Amen? I mean, if it's one thing that's difficult, it's scope of work, isn't it? Because <laughs> everybody's got an idea. And the issue is not getting in touch with everyone's idea. The issue is getting in touch with the vision God's put in us. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. If, you, if you're going to do something around your house, if you're going to do something in the, in the context of your family and relationships, if you're going to challenge somebody in your family, it, it doesn't matter. If you involve any, any other single person, the scope is going to change. It's going to get different. How often do we have a vision for something that we take responsibility for to say, you know what, I'm going to do the assessment. I'm going to get my own eyes on it, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask myself, what do I see? What do I see? What do I see? What is in me? What is important and valuable that stands out to me? What would make this a success? At the end of this journey, would I, how will I feel? Because I think God works inside of our thoughts and inside of our feelings. Amen? Not all of our thoughts and feelings are from God. But he does work inside our thoughts and feelings, doesn't he? I mean, how else would he communicate with us? As of yet, I have not seen God write on the wall. I've not heard an audible voice. This is always through my thoughts, feelings. Sometimes he leads me to a passage of scripture and it resonates in such a way. And I'm like, ah. But somewhere there has to be honest assessment. Honest assessment. You know what we're good at? Complaining. I mean, I'm an expert. It takes no great gift to complain, does it? <laughs> I mean, I don't even have to think about it. I automatically know what is bothering me to complain about. It's so easy. I get up in the morning, and I can complain instantly. I can complain about my own body and physical abilities at this age. <laughs> Amen? I mean, we all wake up and go, ooh, that shouldn't be like that. That ain't right at all sure what's going on with that. I probably need to medicate. Amen. You're leaving me up here hanging, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Takes no great talent. We go down, we look in the kitchen. Ah, 
What I want for breakfast is pancakes and sausage and a big pile of eggs and some biscuits. That'd be good, but I'll eat this protein bar. I don't know why, it ain't helping. But probably those donuts at church that are killing me. But when do you do honest assessment yourself with your own eyes? Here's what I want, here's how I want to be different. Here's where I'm going. This is what I want to accomplish. I'm not just, I'm not just complaining about the world and life. I, I want something different. God's put a vision in me. I want to turn it into something practical. Number two, Nehemiah got specific about what was broken. He realized that what was broken in one place was not broken in another. And he makes the assessment. He writes it down. You know, over here we've got, we're going to need this and this. And over there we're going to need that and that. And it's not the same thing. We don't need the same thing in every place. We need something different. He got very specific about what was broken so that when he could begin to talk to those people, because what's going to happen is now he's going to divide that work up along the wall. And then he's going to be able to talk very specifically to the, here's what you people need to do, and here's what you people need to do, and it's not the same thing. It's very specific. I did the assessment with my own eyes, and I can be very specific about what's broken. And it seems that you and I, we, we, we need that. We need that ability to look at what is broken, to do the assessment and get very specific. <laughs> this is what needs to be different. This needs to be different, and this needs to be different. The vision is becoming a project and a plan. Number three, he underpromised and he overdelivered. That is so hard to do, isn't it? Because yeah. we live in a culture that is really built on overpromising and underdelivering. It is all about the show, is it not? <laughs> I mean, like right now, if you want to do a project, are you all with me? Is everybody okay? I mean, I've got some verbal support over in this side, but I, I want the rest of you to come and balance this out. I feel like we're tipping over a little. So, so you know, the reality in that is it's about the show. Like, if you're going to do a project, what do you got to do? You got to print a brochure. You got to have a, you know, a nice little presentation. You know, I mean, we measure people by that. I don't know if I'm going to buy in. Let's see how good the presentation is. <laughs> And some people, that's the peak. That's the best part of the project right there. That's, that's as high as it's going to get. That moment, that vision, that big reveal. La-la! Because <laughs> we, we really work with the show. But Nehemiah didn't talk. He went under the cover of darkness. He didn't tell them what he had in mind. He didn't tell them what he was going to do. He wasn't rallying support by whipping up their emotions. Instead, he had very practical ways. He wanted to under-promise and over-deliver. There's a recognition in that. It's like, this isn't about having a cheerleading pep squad, you know, pep rally kind of thing. This is about, we're going to have to do some hard work to get from where we are to where we need to be. And I'm not asking you to, you know, just celebrate the end. I'm asking you to dig in and do work. So I don't want to tell you about a big vision. What I want to tell you about is the... The wall's such a mess that there were places I couldn't even get my horse through. I had to go around. It's so bad. It's been a long time. It's been like this for a long, long time. And we're going to need to do some work. He under-promises and he over-delivers. Number four, Nehemiah transitioned well. He went from being a leader to a practitioner. I like that. I like that. I, I've shared this with you, but I get emails every day from people saying, how to lead your church out of the pandemic. For $200, you can come to my seminar, and I will tell you how to lead your church out of the pandemic. 
And you know what I think when I read that? I'm like, well, that's a lot of vision, but where's the practicality of that? I mean, how would you know? Were you alive in 1918 during the great influenza epidemic and so you could tell us how that would work? There's a big disconnection so often between vision and the practicality of it. And, and Nehemiah knew. He knew. He knew that he needed to transition well. So he went from being the visionary to being the practitioner. I'm not just going to talk about, I'm not going to come around every day and cheer you on about the great vision of the completed and rebuilt walls. No. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up a shovel and I'm going to dig and I'm going to work beside you because I'm transitioning. I'm not just a politician. I'm a planner. I'm not just about giving speeches. I know how to work. I'm not just about casting vision. I'm about getting involved. And I just think, you know what? Man, flexibility is a big deal. Transitioning is a big, big deal. You and I, of all the times in our journey, in our life, in the health and life of the church, we need to be able to transition well. Amen? Amen. I don't know what that means. I don't have any idea. But it probably means that we got to do things be willing to do things like we've never done them before. I don't know. Are you willing? Are you willing to, to, to be the person that says, you know, I, I want a great church, don't we all? I want a great church. I want a healthy church. I want a vital church. I want children's ministries to thrive. I want youth ministries to thrive. I, I want the music pro. I want everything to be awesome. And I'm coming back next week to see how you guys are doing. Amen. Oh, and by the way, there's another church down the street doing it better than you, so guess what? We're going to go hang out there. Happens all the time. We've got to transition well. Nehemiah transitioned well. Number five, Nehemiah knew who was for him, and he lived there. I, I just love the fact that you've got this wonderful moment, and now all the officials and the priests are hearing for the first time that Nehemiah's going to rebuild the walls. We're going to rebuild the walls. And, da, da, da. and by the way, the king has sent resources and da da So yay! <laughs> and immediately, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? Are you, listen to the, listen to the way they say, are you rebelling against the king? You can know this. Opposition very often involves ignorance. All right. Now, I recognize that when you say that, you know, you are all such nice people that you're like, wow, this is awkward. I don't like to think of other people as ignorant. (laughs) Then don't. Think of yourself. (laughs) Amen? Amen? Because when I'm really upset about something, I often find that I'm speaking out of ignorance. I don't know what I'm talking about. And so these guys immediately, they go to this. You're rebelling against the king. Oh, no, no. I got a letter from the king. The king is all up in this business. He's all up in it, but you don't know that, and you didn't ask. You didn't ask a single question. What you're thinking about is your stake in it. What you're thinking about is what Jerusalem will be like when this is over. What you're thinking about is how it is right now and the power you hold and how it might be threatened. That's what you're thinking about. You're not thinking about the king. You're not thinking about the good of the city. You're not thinking about the will of God. You're not thinking about the vision. What you're thinking about is your own little stake in it and how it suits you and how comfortable it is to you and that you don't like it. 
And Nehemiah is smart enough to know this. The rebuilding is not about the people that oppose it. The rebuilding is about the people who are for it. And as you read this story, he will invest himself in the people who are for it. He's aware of the people who are against it, and he takes steps. But he doesn't focus his energy on the people who are against it. Can I ask you, is that true of you? As you think about the vision God has for you, for your home, for your family, for your life, for your journey, for your spiritual health, for your mental health, for your emotional health, do you focus on the people that are for you or the ones that are against you? Because let me tell you something, the natural thing for all of us to do is to focus on the people that are against us. They get the best of our energy, the best of our intellectual pursuit. They get it, and they do not deserve it. Instead, we ought to focus on the people who are for us. It matters. I believe that what we do in this place matters. I believe that a healthy church is vital to an individual's sense of purpose and well-being. I believe that when you go out there into the culture and the world, that it drains and creates divisiveness and anxiety. It does me. When I read about politics and I read about taxes and I read about plans and I read about new laws and I read about mandates and I read about vaccines and I read about pandemics and I read about... Chokes the life out of me. It, it just, my insides are in knots. And I need to come into a place, at least for a little while, that is a sanctuary of space that is not about that. It is not about that. This life is temporary. I'm a part of a kingdom that's eternal. And I have to be reminded over and over, get your eyes up. Stop looking around and look up. That there ought to be a place where we come together as the people of God. And we love Democrats and we love Republicans. Because we don't care. Because life's not about that. It's about the will of God and the kingdom of God present and alive on earth. And it's about each one of us pursuing in the best way we understand and know how God's purposes and his will in this world. And we're less concerned how other people are doing it wrong than we are about us doing it right. And that's our focus. Because above all else, we want to love each other. We want to come into a place that is unlike anything else culturally in the world. Because we don't care what you look like. We don't care where you come from. We don't care your level of education. We don't care your nationality. We don't care your race. We don't care your language. We don't care. We love you. 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 We don't care about your politics. We just don't care. We love you. We do. And we need it. We need it. It matters. It matters. In these last year, year and a half, we've, we've had 20 families, probably 20, who have moved away from here. And we say, God bless them. I mean, you know, I mean, that's a part of where God has led them. Some of them are probably watching. We miss you. What is wrong with you? But we do. We believe that God leads people and, and we pray over them and bless them and believe God has great purpose for what's happening to them. One of those families is my own kids. 
I'm furious with them. <laughs> and it was okay for my kids to move to Nashville, Tennessee, but they took my grandkids. <laughs> That's not nice. It's just not nice. But we get it, don't we? It's good for them. We don't hold them back. And so when I think about those folks that have been in that transition through this pandemic, and the pandemic was a catalyst. It was a catalyst that they recognized we can do this, and they did. And we blessed that. I thought about that, and I thought about it. And they weren't just 20 families. They were 20 families that were givers, core people, leaders. They showed up every week and worked. Worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. They're probably blessing some church this morning. We trained them and fixed them, and now they're off blessing somebody else. So I did a little research. A recent Pew survey about the Los Angeles Basin says there are 18 million people who live in the basin here. 18 million! 30% of them say they go to church once or twice a year, Christmas and Easter. 30% of 18 million. You doing the math? Everybody doing the math? 40%, another 40%, don't go to church ever at all. 70% of the 80, 18 million people who live in the basin do not go to church. Now listen, if God has blessed some other congregations with some great, great families, and they have moved to some other places, God bless them. You and I have a mission field. And there is not a lack of people in need of a place that is filled with God's grace and His love, where they are exposed to the reality of the kingdom of God or they're invited to a place of redemption, forgiveness, cleansing, wholeness. There is no shortage of need in our community and people who are searching. The question is, are we going to be the people that rebuild? Because having a vision for a great church is not the same thing as having a plan. It's not the same thing. And so the question then becomes this, are we willing to be those people? Are we willing to be those people? This is just a quick, 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 list. Here we go. Are, are you willing to transition as needed? Are you willing to be smart? I, I just think when, you, when we get into kingdom work and, you know, sometimes we're like always, I just wish God would bless it. And God's just saying, pick up a shovel. Just, God will, God will bless it. Just on the way, they were healed. On the way. I love that way that how that happens so often in the miracles of Jesus. On the way, they were healed. They didn't get healed till they got up and got moving. On the way. Are we willing to dig in? Are we willing to be smart in the process? Are we willing to be a good leader or a good follower? That's two distinct things. One of the things I observe is this. If you're a leader in the church, that's a thankless job. I mean, there's only a few, there's only a few jobs in the church that ever get any attention. I, I wish that was different. You know, I mean, we try once a year to honor all of our volunteers and say thank you. We give you valuable stuff like a candy bar. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you say thank you to people who, who serve out. I don't, I don't know how you say it. But life in the church and service and ministry in the church is, it's a fairly thankless job. I mean, people in the church look for what's broken, not what's working. So if you're a part of a ministry that's thriving and you're doing great, guess what? Nobody cares. That's not true. <laughs> they do care. They just don't notice. They just think it's a part of the landscape. Oh, children's ministry's thriving. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I don't know how it happens. It's some kind of magic that happens. They just, it just, 
Boof. Ministry. I don't see the people that get here early and unload the truck and set up, and they don't see the people that stay late and clean up. They don't see all that stuff. But if you think being a leader is thankless, try being a good follower. Try being the, the person that shows up every single week and just does the work and just does what you're asked and just is flexible. And Listen, you don't rebuild the kingdom of God. You don't rebuild families. You don't rebuild anything without some folks that are good leaders and some folks that are really good followers. And it's what the kingdom of God is all about. Number four, be willing to make honest assessments. Let's be honest about what's working and what's not. Be specific about what's broken. Be humble enough to under-promise and committed enough to over-deliver. Amen? Humble enough to under-promise and committed enough to over-deliver. Number seven, Let's focus on our supporters, not our detractors. What would happen to you, your home, your family? Because I, I recognize this. You know, In our home, in our family, we need to rebuild some things. We've gotten into some bad habits in the last 18 months. Anybody else? Like, it's so easy to do nothing, isn't it? It is so easy to do nothing. It's so easy to go, that's too much trouble. Cook? Why do you think they made Postmates? I don't cook. I don't want to cook. That's like, what are we? It's just so easy to get out of the habit. And you wake up and you go, you know what? We haven't eaten a meal at home. I mean, we eat at home. It's just not food we cooked in three months or six months. Or we haven't had anybody over for dinner. And I know it's still weird. I know we still don't know, you know, and, uh, and I don't, it's still weird. But we've got to rebuild. We've got to rebuild our, our, our social lives. We've got to rebuild uh, the church life. It's time. It's time for us to figure out what it looks like. We don't have to take all the steps. We're not there yet, but let's take some. Let's start. Let's get going. This matters. The church matters. Health matters. The kingdom of God matters. Our partners matter. It matters that we have adequate funds to pay the bills. It matters that we have adequate funds to, to support our partnerships. It matters. It matters. It matters. It matters. It matters. It matters. It matters that we rebuild our own personal lives and our inner world, but it matters, matters that we rebuild the kingdom of God. So my challenge to you this morning is simply this. I think God has given us a vision to be something and do something in the world that matters. We've got to make that vision into a plan. And I know this part. Part of the plan is each one of us making that transition from vision to project to plan. God, would you help us? Would you teach each of us what it would look like for us to transition from vision to project to plan? What that might look like in our own homes, in our own families, what it might look like as we come together as the body of Jesus Christ, as we attempt, as we humble ourselves and pray and just say, God, what do you have? What do you want? What do you desire? What do you dream? How do you see the church? Oh, we, we read about the demise of the church and how it'll never be the same, and maybe it won't. Maybe you got a whole brand new idea, but what we do believe is this, that this is just a transition in the kingdom of God. And we want to be people who are humble and obedient to what is next. And we believe it starts right now. 
So I pray that you would help us to shake off the lethargy of these last 18 months, to shake off the depression and the sadness and, and the fear and the worry and the divisiveness. I pray that you would help each of us in our own journey, in our own life, in our own home, in our own family, to think about what it means to go from vision to plan, and that you would begin to surround us with some practical ways in which we can build the kingdom of God because, Father, our desire, our commitment, our vision, our hope, our prayer is to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to pull this out of the ether and put it right into the practical things. And I pray that across this congregation, the people who are joining us online, the people that will join us through the course of this week, that you would begin to have a prayer on each of our hearts. Where do you want me, God? How do you want me to serve? How can I help? How can I take the vision and be a part of the plan and see the kingdom of God come and live and thrive on earth as it is in heaven? Speak into each of our lives. We pray as you do that, we're going to give you praise and we're going to give you honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Let's stand as we respond. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.